we celebrate God's grace today and all that he does for us. Uh, today we have a special privilege. We have uh, a speaker from the Gideons who's going to share for just a few moments with us. And uh, if you guys would, if you would just give uh, Brother your attention. What Arturo Laredo said after reading a New Testament provided by the Gideons. This is his story. My cousin approached me with a special job offer, and I accepted. I had received $3,000 to store two tons of marijuana in Mexico. I also had to hide it in cars with special compartments in order to cross the border and deliver it to El Paso, Texas. The smell was very strong at home, and even my wife and children smelled like marijuana. We had no trouble delivering the drugs. In November, my cousin came to me again, insisting on one last trip. It was before Christmas, I needed the money, so I said, let's do it. However, when I crossed the border, U.S. immigration agents were waiting. They arrested me for drug trafficking, and I was sentenced to five years in a federal prison in Texas. One day, some men called Gideons arrived at the prison. They gave me a little blue book. After reading Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, which reads, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I said to myself, I want to know him. I began to seek God. Eventually I said, I want to serve you, Lord, and receive Jesus Christ into my heart. I finished my sentence, left prison, and started my own business. Now, where I used to store two tons of marijuana, I keep New Testaments. Because today I serve the Lord in the Gideons International my house is where my camp stores scriptures. To God be the glory. The Gideons International is an extended missionary arm of the local church. For more than 100 years, Gideons and the people who support us have been sharing God's word and helping to change lives around the world. We are unique in that our members live where they serve. We aren't just visitors in countries like Sudan, Haiti, Nepal, or the Ukraine. Gideons live and work there and share the gospel. Presently, Gideons serve the Lord in 200 countries, territories, and possessions, often going where individual churches and denominations can't. Last year alone, Gideons distributed more than 85 million copies of God's word around the world in more than 95 languages. We're reaching many in places like India where scripture distributions have increased dramatically and could grow even more if needed funds were available to provide the scriptures. We're winning here at home too. Uh, just last fall we provided thousands of copies of God's word to uh, Clemson students in Tri-County Tech. The wives of the Gideons uh, place Bibles in doctors and dentist's offices and provide scriptures to those in the medical profession. Twice a year, our local ladies make a distribution to the graduating nurses at Clemson University. 
Got one coming up in about a week. We place Bibles in New Testaments in designated locations, places like hotels, motels, hospitals, assisted living facilities. Through your ongoing contributions, we also distribute New Testaments to students in schools and colleges, prisoners to police, fire and medical personnel, as well as to men and women in the armed forces. To do that, we visit churches to share the blessings God has provided through the distribution of scriptures. And God's blessings are many. Isaiah 55:11 says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish that which I please, and shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Through your support of the Gideon ministry, God's word is at work every minute of every day. You may be wondering how you can help. Our number one need is still prayer. Please pray for a steady flow of funds to purchase and place scriptures and for open doors in churches and in the countries and communities that need the scriptures the most. If God has placed it on your heart, I would ask you to consider a financial gift. Every scripture we distribute and every salvation testimony is the result of the generosity of somebody just like you. Through the Gideon Card Bible Program, you can help purchase scriptures throughout the year by using Gideon cards. The cards are free, and you may use them to recognize an important event. To let someone know you're thinking of them or to place scriptures in memory of a loved one. You have a Gideon card display rack out in the foyer of your church, and you'll find more details on the cards in your Gideon bulletin insert. If you are a Christian business or professional man, we would ask you to prayerfully consider becoming a part of the Gideons International. We'll be glad to provide you with more information on that. When you give to the Gideons International, you help to impact lives for Christ, reaching men, women, and children in a country where many people struggle to survive and they can't afford God's word. For your convenience, you can make your check payable to the Gideons International. There's a credit card form in your Gideon bulletin insert if you want to use a credit card. We now provide a free Bible app for smartphones, tablets, and computers. You can also, uh, you have access to the Bible in many different languages on the, with the app. And you can also make a donation using your smartphone. And if you want to magnify your gift, you can, you can set up a monthly gift. Proverbs 3.27 says, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Uh, Pastor, thank you. And thank you, church, for your ongoing support of the Gideon ministry. We do believe in the power of God's word to transform people's lives, and we are grateful for ministries like the Gideons that provide a great service by getting the word into the homes and into the lives of many, many, many thousands of people each year. So we're very, very grateful for that. Uh, it is great to have each of you with us this morning, and uh, actually, uh, I'm, I already told you guys sort of what I was going to be talking about this morning, but... Let me begin by sharing something that is somewhat unrelated to today's message. It's simply an observation that is associated with some recent events. Initially, it's related to two individuals who are loosely connected to Trinity Wesleyan Church. The first involves a young man 
who came to us almost three months ago. He was 19 years old, a Clemson student, and was looking for a place to belong. He found that place through many of you here at this church, as you loved on him. Unfortunately, he had been fighting a battle with depression for many years, and about a month ago, he attempted suicide. By God's grace, he was unsuccessful, and he is now miraculously uh, already surpassing all of the expectations that the doctors had given to him. In spite of the fact that he shot himself in the head, he seems to be heading toward a full recovery, something that seems completely unrealistic, at least when it first happened. Then this past Sunday, one of the young men who played basketball with us on Tuesday nights and whose twin brother has actually been in this particular service on multiple occasions, he lost his life in a car accident at the age of 18. My heart breaks today for those who remain and are left to pick up the pieces. You know, these two situations have really challenged me over the past few weeks and even days. I think that at times we almost assume that when we deal with young people, that we are dealing with people who have their whole lives ahead of them. We assume that they've got another 40, 50, maybe even 60 or 70 years to live, and that's plenty of time for them to seek Christ. So with that mindset, we often set out to love them into the kingdom. And of course, that is a great idea. It's a great plan. But I wonder sometimes if perhaps we seem to lose the sense of urgency to share with those who seem like they have all the time in the world. We love them, but we never get around to telling them why we love them. We love them, but we never get around to telling them about how much God loves them and how God can genuinely transform their lives. I want to challenge you today to regain that sense of urgency regarding sharing your faith with other people. We are not guaranteed another 60 years with our loved ones. We're not even guaranteed the rest of today. Likewise, I want to challenge you to examine your heart today. Not just the hearts of other people that are around you, but your heart. Don't make the false assumption that you've got plenty of time because you're only 18 or 19 or 29 or whatever else. You look at it and you assume, well, I've got all the time in the world. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. If your heart is not right with God... If you need to confess your sin before him, then you need to do it today. In fact, I want to have a word of prayer with you right now before I even get into the message. I know it's a little bit out of the ordinary. Normally we do this at the beginning and then we do this at the end of the message. But the reality is we are not guaranteed our next breath. And I would like to have a word of prayer with you. But as we do, I want to pray for specifically a couple of things. Maybe you already love the Lord and your heart is right, but you need that sense of urgency again. I want to pray for you that that sense of urgency would be restored. 
Maybe there's somebody that immediately came to your mind when I began to speak this morning. And you began to think of that individual that you know you need to share with. Maybe you've been trying to love them into the kingdom. And I want to pray specifically for that individual that God would begin to open up his or her eyes and that God would open up a door for you to be able to share the gospel clearly with them. Not just loving them, which again is a wonderful thing, but we must also speak the truth to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And then perhaps maybe there is someone here today who does not yet know Jesus Christ. I don't want to stand at your funeral a week, two weeks, a month, a year down the road and have to declare that I don't know whether or not he or she is in heaven today. So I want to give you the opportunity to respond. I'm asking everyone if you bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I know that, this, again, this is out of the ordinary, but if you would say today, Pastor, I need that sense of urgency in my life to share the love of Christ with those around me. Would you just raise your hand right now? See hands all over. Maybe you can put them back down. Maybe you would say, Pastor, there is someone who specifically came to my mind as you were speaking. And I want you to pray specifically that God would open up a door and that he would give me that spirit of boldness to proclaim the truth with wisdom and authority. Would you raise your hand? Hands all over again. Perhaps today there is one who does not yet know Christ. But at this moment, you would like to receive him and to know him personally. So that if that day were to come in your life, you would be ready. Would you raise your hand if that's you? Father, we thank you today. We thank you for the salvation that you alone grant to us. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in coming to your throne because it's no longer our sin that identifies us, but it's the blood of Jesus that was shed to cover our sins. Lord, we come before you today and we ask that you would renew our hunger and thirst for you first. Lord, I pray that you would give us a passion to know you more than anything else in this life. And then I pray that you would give us that sense of urgency to go out and to proclaim the good news to those who desperately need it now. Lord, I pray that you would already begin to open up doors to share with those whom we love. There are people in our lives that immediately, as the message began to be proclaimed this morning, we began to think of those individuals. And I pray today that you would open their hearts and eyes so that right now they would recognize the need for your Holy Spirit to move in them. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to recognize the opportunities that stand before us. And I pray that you would empower us to speak boldly, proclaiming not just conviction of sin as the Holy Spirit brings, not just a message of repentance, but all of that associated with the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would produce fruit through the people who are here today. Lord, I pray that whatever day you call us to be with you, 
that every one of us would genuinely be ready for that day. We give you praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. That has very little to do with what I want to share with you today. But that being said, that's what's been laid on my heart recently. And I wanted to share that with you today. Now, several years ago, I had a youth pastor. Uh, his name is Heath Mulliken. He actually pastors right down the road from, from here now. And uh, Heath Mulliken, we knew when he came that he was destined to be a senior pastor at some point or another. Uh, he was working with youth ministry, was fantastic at it. I believe today he still could be a youth pastor. He was that good at it. Uh, that being said, he knew that eventually he would need to preach. So we worked out a rotation. Uh, once a month, uh, Pastor Heath preached. I'm not very good at giving up my pulpit, but uh, I felt very secure with Heath. So the fourth Sunday of each month, he would preach. And what we would do is we would typically preach in series. And as we would preach in series, whatever just happened to fall on that fourth Sunday, that's what he got. You know what? I took great pleasure. The first time I had him share, uh, just happened to be we were in a series and he drew the assignment of preaching on sexual purity. Uh, I thought that was great. He didn't appreciate it as much as I did. That is something that so rarely do we talk about in the church today. Unfortunately, it's something that we ignore. It's something that makes us uncomfortable. It's something that maybe we're afraid to talk about because there's the possibility that we might offend somebody. But the truth is that God's word has very much to say about the issue of sexual purity. And knowing that we live in a sexually driven society, we cannot ignore God's instruction on this issue. I will warn you that this is a two-part sermon, which means I can't get it all in today. I wish I could, but most of you would be asleep by the time I'm done if I tried to squeeze it all in. With the first part of the sermon taking place today, and I will complete the sermon next Sunday morning. I do want to begin with a scripture passage. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It will not be on the screen behind me. So I'm going to give you a moment if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul who is writing, and as he is writing, he is writing to the church of Thessalonica. This was a group of people who they knew what they ought to do, but here he is addressing some very practical needs in the lives of the church. A, re a reminder to you that everything we look at today is associated with Micah chapter 6, verse 8. If you remember the verse, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So keep that in mind as we read through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. This is what it says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. 
Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, let me begin by just clearly stating who this message is intended for. Obviously, there was a church in Thessalonica who would receive the message, but what I want you to catch is not the location of the church. This was an address to the church, which, guess what, includes you. This is not just a message that's intended for people from 2,000 years ago, but all of us need to hear this message about us being called to a sanctified life, which ought to include us avoiding sexual immorality. Now, we begin with a statement that you should be sanctified. Well, what does that mean? There are typically two definitions that are given for the term sanctification. The first is to be cleansed, to be in many ways set free, to have the sin that once labeled you, the sin that controlled you and dominated your life, for, for that sin to be erased, for you to be cleansed of your sin. The second aspect of sanctification means to be set apart. In other words, now that you are in Christ, you're not supposed to live like the rest of society. You are set apart, and as you seek to live a holy life through the power of the Holy Spirit that was given there in verse 8, there are practical things that you ought to do, and there are practical things that you ought not to do. And of course, Paul begins with a call for us to avoid sexual immorality. Now, it should be noted that he doesn't tell us to avoid sex. He calls us to avoid sexual immorality. Implicit in this is the fact that sex is good. In fact, I will personally verify that it is very good. I actually enjoy sex. But I will add that good sex is sex that is done God's way. And by God's way, I mean within the marriage relationship. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, we are told that each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The Bible has three important things to say about the meaning and the purpose of marital sex. First, according to Genesis 2, verse 24, it is central to the process by which a husband and a wife become one flesh. Second, it is the means whereby they participate in the ongoing work of God's creation through the pleasure and delight of procreation or reproduction. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. Third, it is intended to serve as a picture or a symbol of the union between Christ and his church, according to Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. Sex, then, isn't supposed to be all about me. Rather, it is designed. It is a designed function as part of the give and take of an interpersonal relationship. It is a holy mystery, a powerful bonding that shapes and affects the relationship between a man and a woman as nothing else can. But of course, there are many things which God has created that were created good. 
Yet the perversion of man reduced it to something evil. The plain and simple guideline that is uh, guideline is that any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage is a perversion of what God intended. But there are so many other questions that sometimes rise in regard to what's okay and what's not okay. My goal this morning is to be able to allow God's word to answer what is okay in God's eyes. As a youth pastor, I hated when teenagers would come to me and they would ask the question, how far is too far? I hated it because at the heart of the question was the idea that I want to get as close to sin as possible without actually having to call it sin. They were actually asking the wrong question. They were trying to get close to sin. Well, God doesn't want us anywhere close to sin. He doesn't want sin to be a part of our lives in any way, shape, or fashion. And I know that all sin carries consequences, but the truth is that sexual sin is not something you can simply sweep under the rug and make it disappear. There are significant consequences when we choose to participate in sexual sin. Some bring the potential for physical damage. And all sin brings the potential for mental and emotional baggage. Certainly sexual sin is in that category. So let's get down to business. For the rest of the day, let's just let's look at some of the questions that may arise, some of the issues that may arise, and allow God's word to tell us what's okay. First thing we see is people tend to push the envelope with everything that we do. This is that getting close. How close can I get? When do I cross that line? One issue that arises is the issue of pornography. There was a time that pornography was something that immediately created an image of shame. In order to view pornography, you had to go to some disgusting place and you ran the risk of somebody seeing either you or your vehicle out front of that place. And when you imagine the people who were looking at it, you immediately pictured some dirty old man. But the truth is, much of that has changed in our society. Thanks to the very easy access to the internet, you can view pornography in the privacy of your own home using a computer or even a cell phone and nobody has to know anything about it. According to the Huffington Post, in a 2013 article, they stated that porn sites get more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter, all three combined. Some interesting statistics about pornography and the internet. There are 4.2 million pornographic websites as of 2015. By the way, that is 12% of the total websites that are available. Daily pornographic search requests, there are 68 million daily requests. 25% of the total search requests on a daily basis. Monthly pornographic downloads, 1.5 billion downloads per month. That is 35% of all downloads on the internet have to do with pornography. Websites that offer illegal child pornography, over 100,000. 
youths who receive sexual solicitation while looking on the internet. 20%, that's one in five. And worldwide visitors to pornographic websites, over 72 million people. This is a problem that is no longer small and limited to a small storefront, but rather this is something that has invaded the homes of millions and millions of people today. In addition, it should be noted that the use of pornography used to just be a male problem, but that is not true any longer. In a Marie Claire 2015 article, it was revealed that 71% of women surveyed had viewed pornography at least a few times each month. By the way, none of this even touches on the people who are affected on the other end of pornography. Sex trafficking has become one of the greatest plagues in our culture today, and every single day there are thousands of people that are taken advantage of simply for the pleasure of others who will view their sexual acts online. I've heard it said that pornography doesn't hurt anybody. I've heard individuals justify pornography based solely on the idea that at least they're not having a sexual affair with someone outside of marriage. At least they're not committing adultery. But are they? Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. He talks about anger and says that if you have hated a person, then you may as well have already committed murder against them. And then he says this, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me suggest that pornography naturally carries a lust element, which according to Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, also means adultery is included. In addition, the use of pornography perverts realistic expectations that we may have for our own spouse when we do join together in sexual activity. To put it plainly, pornography has no place in the life of a believer. Why do I start there? It's simple. I've been in ministry now for 23 years. And during that time, I have seen numerous families that have been completely destroyed simply because of the power of the addictive nature of pornography. I've seen husbands and wives who boast about the fact that they have participated in it, but as they boast, they've almost justified it, saying, but everybody else looks at it, so somehow it's okay. It's not I've seen pastoral friends that are no longer pastors today because they have compromised their ministry because of the fact that they had a selfish desire that had to be satisfied with something they never should have looked at in the first place. Why do I begin with pornography? Because the draw to pornography is really something that takes place in the heart. I know that there will always be temptations that are there. You cannot avoid the fact that temptation will arise in your life. But what I can tell you is this, if you do not give room to that temptation, then it will never be able to take root. 
you can choose to walk away from pornography. Now, I also will push the envelope here just a moment myself. I understand that there is an addictive nature to pornography. And I've dealt with individuals through drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Often we recognize because we've seen it in our culture and we kind of we expect it's a process of healing and recovery. And I would suggest that the same things that drive many drug addicts and alcoholics, they drive people to sexual addictions as well. I want you to know today that God can set you free from any addictive behavior. God can cause you, no matter what addictive behavior that is, to be set free, to no longer be identified by that sin, but rather to be identified truly by the power of Jesus Christ in your life. What used to identify you does not have to identify you for the rest of your lives. I would call you briefly, even though next week I'm going to deal with the redemptive side of this more. I would call you, if you find yourself in this position, first of all, to the act of repentance. Every individual here has committed sin at some point. Some of us say, well, but I never looked at pornography. All of us have committed sin. And all of us are in need of the act of repentance until... Basically, God has forgiven us of that sin. Once we've repented, guess what? You're forgiven. What a blessing that is. But then I also would encourage you, and again, this is very brief because next week I'm going to focus more on the redemptive side. I also would encourage you to create a sense of accountability. I believe parents understand this. I believe that all teenagers need accountability. I don't believe that it's safe for a family to provide internet activity or availability if you are not also going to hold them accountable. There are websites that are available. I'll give you some of those next week. Uh, There are websites that are available that are intended to encourage young people uh, to keep people accountable, to keep them from wandering, just to know that someone else is going to get a report of what you looked at is sometimes enough to hold someone accountable. I want to encourage you not just as parents, but every one of you, allow yourself to be held accountable because this is far too powerful of a temptation for us to simply sweep it under the carpet and assume that it can't affect us. Another question that arises is not as much about pornography, but I would say sometimes we question whether or not it's really an affair. Is it really an affair if it's just an emotional connection versus a physical connection. Sometimes we allow unhealthy relationships, but we never move to the physical side of it. And the idea is that at least I didn't have sex with that individual. God's response to that is very clear. First, remember the words of Jesus that I mentioned earlier. If you looked upon her lustfully, then you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. Second, emotional relationships can become incredibly powerful. And what begins small can become something that is incredibly destructive. Consider the story of Amnon and Tamar, two people. I know their names seem really abstract and nobody cares about those individuals, but they're important. Amnon and Tamar are both children of King David. Their story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now the perverse nature of their story is made worse because they are brother and sister. And the fact that Amnon, the brother, 
will eventually end up raping his own sister, Tamar. But it didn't start out that way. In fact, actually, the scripture simply states that Amnon loved Tamar. What I would suggest to you is this. When you enter into an emotional relationship with someone else, and you put yourself in a position where that individual begins to take a position of priority in your life, and that person is not your spouse, you are on very, very dangerous ground. I'm not going to suggest to you that everyone who enters into a position like that will eventually end up raping their sister. Obviously, that is not the declaration that's there. But had Amnon, had Amnon not looked upon his sister the way he did, desiring more than just a brotherly-sisterly relationship, then it never would have escalated to be something far more destructive. Clearly, God never intended for that to happen. But far too many of us have allowed small relationships to become big relationships that would eventually compromise the relationship between us and our spouse. And we cannot allow that to take place. The marriage bed is something that is intended to be kept pure and beautiful. And a part of that comes from the fact that you are committed to one another and that you take the priority. Your spouse takes the priority over those other relationships. One last thought that comes from this, specifically dealing with these relationships, is found in Ephesians 5. The passage is all about marriage and the responsibility that each spouse has toward the other. And it includes a wife's responsibility to do what? You guys know the answer. To submit to her husband. All the husbands said amen. Any of them? Come on. Actually, the reason they don't say amen is because they know that the second part of it applies to them. Husbands are instructed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially. He gave of himself saying, I will sacrifice myself so that you can be made pure, spotless, without blemish. When we begin to develop strong relationships to where other people become the priority as opposed to our spouse, it becomes impossible for us to genuinely follow through on the example that is given here in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, if you are so attached to someone outside of your marriage, submitting to your husband is not something that's attractive. Husbands, if you are more in love with a coworker or someone else that you are with, it is not possible for you to genuinely give of yourself, all of yourself, for the needs of your wife. God is very clear. Emotional affairs are just as significant as a physical sexual affair. And then finally for today, there is a question of homosexuality. Society has embraced homosexuality as being normal, yet God's word declares it as anything but normal. According to Leviticus in chapter 18, verse 22, and in chapter 20, verse 13, it is called detestable. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, it refers to homosexuality as shameful and unnatural. 
The point is that homosexuality was never intended for God's people. It wasn't even intended for those who would quote unquote not be God's people. Now, of course, society has found so many different ways to justify such behavior. Perhaps the biggest argument that has been used is that an individual has been born that way. It's as if they didn't have a choice. I'm going to surprise some of you with what I'm about to say, but I will agree that perhaps they were born that way. But before you call me a heretic, I also ask you to hear me out. You see, all of us were born with a sinful nature. Perhaps your sinful nature shows up in a different manner from the person who's sitting beside you. But all of us were born with a sinful nature. As we were born with a sinful nature, we must choose to respond to that sinful nature. When we repent of our sins, what we choose to do is to, instead of being identified by the sinful nature, the things that once drove us, we now become identified by the thing that saved us and spared us, which is Jesus Christ. Whether your sin is a sexual sin, or your sin is an issue of telling the truth, or your sin is dealing with anger... The idea is that God has the power to redeem that life. So regardless of the way you were born, we believe that God can set us free. Problem is this. If an individual says, well, you know what? I'm just a really angry type of person and sometimes I lash out. It's just the way I am. We look at that individual and say, well, you've got to change. You can't stay that way because that's destructive and it will destroy other people. We look at most of our sins and we embrace the idea, maybe you were born that maybe maybe you were born that way, maybe you learned that as a child, but you can't remain in that sin. But with this issue of sexuality, what we have declared is, well, I was born that way, and therefore you simply have to accept that that's who I am. But the truth is, God can set anyone free. And I believe it today because I have seen it. I believe that God can take those who are broken, even broken in sexual sin, and he can make them whole. Got a good friend, his name is Bill. Bill came to our church in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, I had actually met him through an addiction recovery program, the same program that Jonathan had been a part of. And I had met him before, and I had heard his story, so I knew what he was going to share. And as he stood up and shared with our congregation. He was one of those guys, he just, he, he met everybody, he talked to everybody, he was friendly, everybody loved him. He was just one of those guys, everybody wanted to talk with him. So Bill gets up to preach after he's already greeted everybody in the congregation. And of course, there's a little bit of rustling and everybody's just kind of, it's, it's just like when the pastor stands up and preaches. And Bill begins his testimony, he says, I lived for 23 years as a practicing homosexual. And immediately, it was like someone had just sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. All the rustling stopped, and everybody just all of a sudden, what did he just say? Bill today is a pastor who is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ because God completely redeemed him of that lifestyle. God can still redeem us of that lifestyle. Now, I want to go back to, just in closing, I want to go back to that verse. 
in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And I know that this is brief because I'm not able to complete the sermon today, but I want to go back to this verse for a moment. What does God require of you to act justly? My first challenge to you today is if you are participating in any form of sexual immorality, it is time for God to take the reins in your life. It is time to leave sexual immorality behind. If you are one of the many millions of Americans who struggle with the issue of pornography, I want you to know today that you can walk away from it by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. The mere fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to you, that means the Holy Spirit dwells in you. There should be no room for sexual sin to also remain in you. It is time for us to act justly, to leave that sinful lifestyle behind. Maybe it's not pornography. Maybe you're in a relationship that's unhealthy. Maybe you have uh, had a draw to someone of the same sex, regardless whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, it's sin. And it is time for us to act justly, to choose to walk away. The second part of that verse, what does God require of you? To love mercy. I will tell you where this mostly shows up is in this issue of homosexuality. In our culture today, the church has become almost a voice of anger towards such sins. To where we speak out so boldly that homosexuality is a sin. And by the way, it is a sin. However, I want you to understand that we must also love mercy as we proclaim the sinful nature of homosexuality. There are people all around you that need the grace of Jesus Christ. We must speak the truth to them, but love them at the same time. The phrase we've heard for years is, hate the sin and love the sinner. And that's exactly what we need to do. But that is loving mercy. Be willing to show mercy to those that you speak the truth to. And finally, what does God require of you to walk humbly with your God? I have a dog. I like to take the dog for a walk. Um, my dog has this tendency. My dog pulls constantly. She wants to lead wonder if there aren't some of us who want to lead in this area of sexual morality instead of allowing God to lead. You see, I was very intentional for each one of these sexual struggles today to allow God's word to be the rebuttal. See, I think in our mindset so often we have justified why, well, this sin is okay for me. What does God's word say about it? Instead of you taking the lead and you deciding to be in charge and you decide what's okay, what does God's word say about your sexuality? Every single one of us needs to allow God to be in control of our lives. Now, I understand this is probably the least comfortable message any of you have ever heard me preach. But God's word is very clear what he expects. Sex is good. But if you don't do it the way God intended, 
it, be, it can become an incredible evil, even in the body of Christ. Again, I know it's uncomfortable. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God in the area of sexual purity. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are grateful for your mercy. We are grateful that you know where we have fallen short. And you have made a way for us to be redeemed. To leave sin behind. For far too long, we have justified our sin. And we need you to come in and transform our lives, even in the area of sexual purity. For the young people today who may have not reached a point where this is a struggle, Lord, I pray that they would always walk humbly with their God, that this would never, ever be a battle that they have to fight. For those who have already had to fight that battle, Lord, I pray for forgiveness where we've fallen short, and I pray for strength and healing so that we will never walk down that path again. Lord, I pray for our marriages today. I pray that you would make them God-honoring marriages so that you would be the center of our marriages. Lord, help us to truly love our spouses as if they are the most important people that you have placed in our lives. Lord, I pray that our marriages would be better than they've ever been before. Lord, I pray that you would help us to honor you, even in our sexuality. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I was told a couple weeks ago I'm not supposed to apologize for preaching longer, so I'm not going to apologize to you. Uh, but what I will say is, uh, uh, I know that this is an uncomfortable topic, but it's something that's significant. I deal with far too many young people, college students, teenagers when I was a youth pastor, and even families that struggle with this issue of sexuality, often because of pornography. I'll tell you, that is the biggest issue that I've seen, but it shows up in other ways. Make sure that you honor God in the way you handle yourself, especially in this area of sexuality. It's incredibly important. I do thank you for being with us. We are going to take about a five-minute break, and then we have a brief business meeting that needs to be addressed. Uh, I apologize for running a few minutes late, but Hallelujah. is that for the business meeting or the message? Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for being here, and go in peace.